so one of the leading lawyers there had come out from New York. We just had coffee and he said to me, Bill, you've got to make a decision. Do you want to be in the professional strand or do you want to be in the managerial strand? And today I'd say the leadership strand because I'd prefer that term. And that really got me thinking because he said, you know, the schools are different. Each is equally valuable, though often the leadership strand is regarded as better, but I don't agree with that. I think the professional strand needs to be treasured and nurtured and paid what it needs to be paid. Welcome to the Council Podcast, a podcast about life as an in-house lawyer. I'm your host, Mel Scott, Senior Legal Counsel at a global technology company based in Brisbane, Australia. I am passionate about all things in-house and am so excited to share insights interview key people in our profession and demystify in-house practice. My guest today is the wonderful Bill Ash. Bill has led a colourful life in the law with over 30 years of experience as a corporate leader and in-house lawyer. He has worked in New York, Texas, in big law, in his own law firm and in-house at multinationals including Exxon and West Farmers. In 2016, Bill moved on from lawyering, but was most certainly not finished with learning and growing as a human. He gained postgraduate degrees in counselling and coaching, and now facilitates workshops, coaches, and is writing his first book on the power of conversations. He reminds me that our careers are marathons, not sprints, and that there is so much time to experience all of the things that we might want to. Bill is a wealth of knowledge and wisdom. He's also really humble and generous with his time. Much of what we discuss today can apply to all areas of our lives outside the law. Bill just has a way of simplifying issues and getting to the heart of things. Enjoy this conversation with Bill Ash. Good morning, Bill. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. Good morning. So where are you? You're in Brisbane, right? Yes, I'm in Brisbane in lockdown in Pullenvale. I'm very lucky okay. with my lockdown. I'm on acreage. so Or just a little bit of space, hey? Yeah, no, it's great. Though my wife, Margie, she's locked down in Sydney so and got a child locked down in Melbourne. So we're doing well in our family. Yeah, wow. Yeah, we're all stuck for a little while, aren't we? <laughs> that's, the way, that's the way it's looking. Well, let's crack on to things that do not revolve around COVID and lockdown, yes. <laughs> just for a change of pace. I'll ask you just a fun question that I always ask at the start of the interview. It gives us a sense of the person that we're talking with, really. And the question is that if you had a limitless credit card but could only spend it at one shop, what shop would that be and why? No pressure in the question if it's going to tell you who I am. <laughs> but um, <laughs> look, I think it would be a bookshop called Avid Reader. It's a fabulous Brisbane institution and it's a great place to go. They've done a great job in terms of all the workshops and seminars they have there as well as the books. So it would be there. It's a beautiful bookshop. I know the one. And when you're walking in, are you going left to the fiction or right to the non-fiction? What's grabbing you first? Oh, if I have a unlimited credit card, I just open my arms wide. <gasps> yes. <laughs> you are not wrong. I love that. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Let's take you back a, a few years. I want to start not at the very beginning, but at the beginning of your legal career. And it's been a long and an illustrious one with many twists and turns, which we'll, we'll get to. But if we take you back to, you know, your earliest memories of lawyering, 
or even as a law student, like what jumps out at you when you think back to who you were and, and where you were early in your career? Wow. I was brought up in an atmosphere where I, I guess, look, I don't know whether it was expected of me, but it was certainly a course to become a lawyer. And so I entered arts law at university. But in terms of my, as a lawyer, back in those days, we had article clerkships. So in my last two years of law school, I was an article clerk, which is a fabulous system. And, you know, you're kind of bonded with other clerks. You know, and you spent a lot of time walking the streets because in those days we delivered everything for filing and things like that. So it was a, even though I was in a large law firm, you had a range of stuff you did. And I actually sat in the same room as, I think those days we called them our master solicitor. And I was very fortunate with the one I had. And it was just a terrific experience. So you would sit in the same office as the, your boss, I suppose, the person that you were reporting to? Yes. And I was very lucky with the one I had. He taught me a lot of leadership, actually. He would place his trust in me and would expect me to, if I didn't know something, to ask. And I learned that very carefully with, I always remember, I did a letter. It was a one or two page draft letter. And I think it was on stamp duty. And I handed it to him, all ready to go for the client. And he said, should I read it? And I just momentarily you know, said, oh my goodness. And I said, no, I think it's right. And he signed it without reading it. You know, I tell these stories today with insurance and everything like that. Sometimes people feel horrified, but it was a tremendous experience. And it taught me a lot about leadership from that moment. Was the letter okay? <laughs> yes, we'll put it this way. It's like most of what we do, we'll never know. I mean, was it ever read? <laughs> well, true. Yeah. Was it of any significance? But you, I, you take, yeah. I remember a general counsel, I went to a session, I mean, it's only a few years ago, and we're in a large law firm, and they're just asking the general counsels about opinions, and one piped up and said, well, I'll only read the summary at the first page, no matter how long the opinion is. So, <laughs> you know, but that was a great lesson early on. Yeah, wow. You're bunkered down. You're learning probably by osmosis more than you realize. And you're doing that for how long? How long was the article clerkship at that time? That was two years. Two years. And the commercial, you said commercial law firm, that's kind of where you... Yes, I was. And just another bit of history, we were actually paid. It used to be that uh, clerks weren't paid. We were actually paid. So that was another bonus. And tell me about the technology at the time. I know that's a bit of a cheeky question, but what did you have? What did you do? <laughs> it, it made me like Mr. Flintstone. Um, I know. <laughs> um, but look, it was, it was like that, you know, carbon copies. And we had things called telexes that had these, oh, look, I can't remember so long ago. But anyway, they came out in all this strip of dot um, holes. And you know, I can remember one partner um, getting a telex from Indonesia, this long agreement, and it almost filled up the room. <laughs> so they were things, look, I guess, look, I can't even remember whether we had faxes. We probably did, because I can remember just skipping a bit when I joined Exxon, I can remember when the company just converted to, I think they called them dumb computers at those times. I can't remember why. They were just these huge computers on your desk. But overnight, we changed. And it was the most smooth transition of any change I've experienced in corporate life. And overnight, the paper consumption doubled <laughs> because everyone printed out whatever was sent to them. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's going back a few years. You've seen it all. You've seen the computers come in and yeah. then take front and centre of the desk and then get bigger and then get smaller. And, you know, now they follow us everywhere in our pockets. Do you think that the evolution of technology has, like, 
Uh, I'm almost leading the question here because I feel like I know the answer for us all. But how do you feel like the evolution of technology has affected legal practice, just speeding things up, making it more efficient, too efficient? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, look, a very broad brush approach to technology and the internet. You know, like so much in life, we can let it control us. Well said. It is the most fantastic thing known, and you know, I could go on for a couple of hours why, from the professional to the absolute personal, where people can find, hey, I'm not alone, there are other people out there. And I suppose if we don't do the lawyer, focus just on the lawyers, lawyers can find anyone around the world who can help them, whether it's from a legal problem to a well-being problem or issue. And so I give a shout out to the group of people who have just formed in Australia this international mentoring program is amazing. You're 24-7. So that's what we've got to control. I didn't necessarily control it well in my life, but somehow we've just got to control that. For sure. Or it'll control us, as you say, which is absolutely the truth. But it it is the most hardest thing. You know, we can pontificate, just turn the phone off or a lot of LinkedIn posts, you're going to tell us advising how to do it, but it's another decision, another practice to do it. It is so hard. Mm. Was it like that when you started in practice? being so available all the time? Nothing like today because of the technology, but you still worked hard for good or bad, you know, right or wrong. You worked long hours. I was involved with some huge projects that were 24-7, whether Mm. most things were local, but then they started more global. But it was 24, skipping forward a few years, there's no question my family felt the emotional pressures of that, as I did. I mean, you know, I just brought it home. I call it mood contagion. There's no question about that. So we might have not had the computers at home back in those days or whatever. You know, you're at the office. Yep. Feeling important. (laughs) Yes. In so many ways, things haven't quite changed. It's just the the manifest through different mediums perhaps. But Well, that's really well said. I think that so much in life we say, oh, my goodness, this is new. And I've been spending a few years thinking about writing a book and done a lot of research and, you know, Things have been with us since time immemorial. They just have different circumstances around them. Yeah, that is so true. And we can learn so much from the past. Well, that's why I wanted to interview you. Really? (laughs) I'm in the past. (laughs) I know. I know I sound so cheeky. But we we are from different generations, Bill, and we do have different experiences and you do have a significant body of wisdom to draw upon. Yes, thanks. So I'm flattering you. (laughs) (laughs) What do you want? What do you want? (laughs) I want the answers to the world's problems, please, from someone who's walked the path before. That's what I want. (laughs) No pressure. If I I have the answers, boy. Well, you must know more than I do. At the very least, I'm sure there's pattern recognition and you can just see things that you've seen before and and pass on the wisdom to those that are coming through now. And I love when I speak with you and we catch up, I really do get that sense of wisdom and sharing and that you're very open to sharing your lessons and, you know, take it or leave it or apply it or not, whatever is going to work for the individual. But I think that it's a real gift of yours to be giving back in the way that you do. So, that's enough of that. You know, I think, I know. You, yeah. I think you're I'm, great. <laughs> I mean, it's only, what, 10, 15 in the morning and I'm wanting to call for that scotch, but I've given up drink. So. <laughs> oh, well, good for you during lockdown. I'm, yeah. 
I think other people, a lot of people have gone the other way. But in any event, I want to go back in time a little because we haven't even got to the good bit yet. I want to hear about your time in New York and what an incredible experience decade that would have been. Can you take us back and explain how you got from Australia to New York and what was going on at that time? Yeah, look, to give a very shorthand version, something told me I needed to get away from Sydney, you know, where I grew up. There was no ostensible need to do so from the outside. Everything was going well. Had a terrific family, terrific relationships professionally in the law firm I was at. But I just needed to get away and be in a place where I wasn't surrounded by people I knew. So I took the opportunity to go to the University of Pennsylvania to do a master's, more for an excuse just to be over there. And it was a fabulous experience. There's 10 or 12 of us in the program, all foreigners. No, sorry, one wasn't. And it was just a terrific living experience. And in those days, oh, they still do, I guess. They did not in Australia. The law firms came to the law schools for interviews. You know, friends said, why don't you do it? And I said, why not? Which has been a great philosophy of mine in life, you know, why not? And so I applied. And the best thing is that if you're accepted for the second interview, you got a free trip to where you're going. And I had, can't remember now, maybe three or four interviews in New York. That's how it came about. There was one interview with a law firm that was one of the two leading defense law firms in corporate world. And I went in there and it was <laughs> it was a little 24-7 sweatshop. It was really interesting. And, it, you know, this sweat was going everywhere as people were running around. They didn't take me on, but just skipping a few years was really good. I was working in Hong Kong and this firm was actually engaged by us. Me being me, I, I, in the first conversation with the guy, I said, oh, well, you know, I'm glad we're speaking because you rejected me a few years ago. And I met as a joke or something, but boy, they did their research. And the next call, they almost went on for half an hour how good I was and they didn't reject me because of that, blah, blah, blah. But anyway. <laughs> It's a small world, isn't it? <laughs> yes. They're a fantastic firm. But anyway, I got to this very large law firm. And again, it was just a wonderful experience. I got into what they call the foreign law program or something or other. And again, there are several foreigners there from around the world. And it was just an amazing experience, a very good experience there. That's where you worked hard. But for all said and done, sometimes we, back then anyway, I don't know whether chip on our shoulder, but we didn't necessarily think we might have been as good as other because they portray themselves as such good workers, blah, blah. But we can hold our head high as Australian lawyers. I learned that there, very high. We got things done. We did it often, in my view, you know, without as much fuss around it, just got it done. It was just a wonderful experience. I formed wonderful relationships, which is really the key to, in my view, a professional life or you know, in the corporate world, the relationships you have. There was this British guy, English guy in the room next to me, and he kept on saying, you must go to the mother country. Why don't you go to the mother country? And too polite to tell you how I responded. <laughs> anyway, it turned out that he was from Linklater's and a couple of partners were coming through. Anyway, cut a long story short, I ended up in Hong Kong after that, not in London. No. I said, no, I won't go there. Which I, if you do have regrets, that may be one, but it didn't matter. But probably would have been good to go there before I went to their partnership law firm in Hong Kong. Anyway, that's what I did. And again, Hong Kong was another wow experience. And, you know, for the first time, I actually met capitalism. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Culture shock. Oh, no, it wasn't actually. I'd heard about this culture shock. Well, look, who knows? It was 
That's because I'm a, a man. We don't express our emotions, so I didn't feel the culture shock. <laughs> but tongue in cheek. But yeah, it wasn't. A, I think I was very lucky because I was taken around the law firm, and there was one shut door they didn't take me into, and I was curious, so I knocked on the door, and there was a young local about my age. And he just said I was the first person to knock on the door and make an effort to say hello. We warned to each other and he took me into his friendship circle. And that's a credit him with the wonderful experience I had in Hong Kong. So that was great. But the legal experience, to be honest, was perhaps the best legal experience I had thrown into the deep end with trust and the matters I worked on. It was a wonderful experience. Wow. You've practiced what feels like all over the world by this stage. And we're not even at the part of the story where you were working in-house. Like, you know, your experiences are really quite broad. And I think that's so exciting. And for anyone who was interested in understanding that your career is a marathon and not a sprint and how many twists and turns you can have. Oh, absolutely. I really do point to you as an example of that, like how wonderful that you had all of this experience. Sometimes we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to know exactly what we want to do straight out of university and get on with it and we cannot deviate. And that's very, very tough to put that kind of pressure on yourself. But your experience is something that I think gives a lot of hope that there's time and that you can try different things. I think, yeah, I think things present themselves and been very lucky. But when I look around a lot of other people, others that choose whatever journey they're on, as I say, if you're able to muster some cash to buy a plane ticket, that's all it needs. I mean, that's an exaggeration, but many people do it. I often think one option I didn't take, which I had my time again, I might do that, is kinds of people can work with overseas and things like that, and people do it. And they can do it with very little financial input from them. There's scholarships, there's paid to go over, whatever. And there's a lot of opportunities. I don't know what the post-COVID world's going to do, but there are a lot of people I know that have done this. We're all going to live to 100 years now. I mean, that's an exaggeration. Oh, well, maybe You do have not. a long lifespan. Yeah. And, you know, there's plenty of time to do everything. Do what you need to do. Yeah, for sure. And I think your career is testament to that. And it feels like you saw opportunities and you weren't afraid to try new things and get outside of your comfort zone. So that's also a, a key takeaway, I would think, if you're looking at what made you enjoy your career and, and make it take these different roads. Really, really quite cool. But we're still in Hong Kong. Did you go anywhere else? What, what happened there after Hong Kong? I went back to Sydney, very agitated because I, I don't think I'd finished. Finished in Hong Kong? Well, that part of my journey. Mm, gotcha. Um, I just very agitated. <laughs> my poor friends at the time, I don't know what they thought was going on, but I went back to the law firm I was with. I really wanted to get out of there again. Sydney's a fabulous city, but again, it was never anything to do with the city or the people. It was really, I just needed to get out. And an opportunity came up. There was an advertisement for Exxon or ESO Australia, they called it then. I knew someone there and corporate life, I mean, I was never going to be in it. I was always going to thought probably be a barrister, but I just saw the ad and he said it was a good place to work. I saw it as a means to get back to the States because Exxon's obviously in the States and Anyway, I had a job interview and got it. I don't know whether this is true or not, but this is my memory that I was asked, would I mind getting a posting to the States? And 
my version is I said, well, just give me time to pack my bag. But whether that's true or not, I like the story. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and by chance, that's what happened. In those days, Exxon, they had some people over in the States that felt that Australians had a lot to offer because we had a fair more of a global attitude rather than a very focused round-the-block attitude. And there was a guy, my boss in, not my direct boss, but the one in Houston was a very broad-minded person like that. And he felt that an Australian can make a contribution. And so I was there a couple of years later, first to Toronto and then to Houston. Wow. And again, it was the relationships I formed, the work I had was just great. And the, and the living experiences too. Actually, talking about culture shock, I did experience culture shock, and that's when I went to Houston. <laughs> Gun toting, beer, <laughs> beer drinking, dollar notes thrown out, and from cars on the road. <laughs> so <laughs> that was culture shock. Gotcha. Wow. Okay. How common was it at that time for private practice lawyers to move in-house or to go into corporate legal? Was that a common thing or it was a new thing? My memory is Australia was behind the states in that, if you can say behind. I happened just by chance to choose a company that respected their lawyers, didn't just see them as there as a conduit to the outside law firms and thought they had a contribution to make, both legally and, and perhaps even commercially. But <laughs> when I said to my law firm, I was leaving the senior partner, a lovely, lovely guy that called me up and tried to persuade me to stay, blah, blah, blah. And but he said something like, oh, of course, you know, you, you won't any longer be a lawyer, you know, a real lawyer. And he meant it nicely, you know, but it's, mm, that interesting. was the, yeah. Bit of stigma there. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, I didn't mind. But that's such an interesting point because I feel like that still exists to some extent. And, and I had a very similar experience when I left private practice as well. It was, it was very much a, oh, okay, well, if you think so, you know, you can always come back. And it's bizarre to me because I'm not going back. It's like yeah. I've, I've seen the light personally. But it's very interesting, this mentality of, yes, you're going to be less than if you work in-house. I find that so interesting and so incorrect. That's interesting that you have experienced that. But look, a lot of these attitudes don't change. I mean, well, put it this way, they take a long time to change and it's never worried me in a sense. In terms of my degradation to the lower caste of the law, I went from wanting to be the higher caste, the barrister, to the pits, a corporate lawyer. So <laughs> we like to look at it like that because certainly in those days, and it still hangs around where there is that tier. Yeah, what is it with us lawyers and hierarchy and status? You know, we, we're obsessed by it and it, it can rule people's lives and their decisions and their careers by what they think might give them more status or hierarchy and not necessarily more happiness. It blows my mind sometimes that that's the way that a lot of us still think. Well, I'm going to shock you with my answer. What I think is the case is that that's because we lawyers are human. Yeah. <laughs> we are, aren't we? I forgot. <laughs> I know. Uh, if there were any non-lawyers listening to this podcast, I'm sure they'd be surprised at that. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, that's interesting. You bring up status. I mean, I saw some people in the States, many people in the States, absolutely gripped by status and levels of society. It just surprised me. So we know it's not only lawyers, but people need to do what they need to do. And I think it's just a question of us, for us not to be concerned about it, because 
that old age, you know, an opinion tells you more about the opinion given than the person receiving. So, I mean, it's all fine. And I never felt that really because, well, look, I might have, but I can't remember. But all I know is that I was never meant to be in corporate life, but I remained in it except for an eight-year stint when I had my own law firm. But I can only say that it has been a wonderful enabler for me to live a you know, pretty good life with all its ups and downs and challenges, but it's always been pretty good to me and enjoyed it. Two things I'll say. One, the difference between being a corporation and being a law firm says you can just go to where that computer is. If you're giving a legal advice about a computer or about a business, you can go to the business and smell and feel the business so easily. And that's what makes it interesting. You may just give some legal advice while you're doing it, but it's good. And I think the thing that absolutely impressed me in the corporations I worked in was the skills and capabilities of the people I work with. And by the end of the conversation, they'd often given their own legal advice to themselves. Right, right. And you had to tone it up with, oh, maybe there's a case to support that, or maybe this is a way to express it or whatever. But I was just stunned and it was really very good because we lawyers can get a bit uppity with uh, go back to status or expertise. But the other thing is I was very lucky very early in my career. You know how corporate life or any life is a matter of luck. You're just in the right place at the right time. And I was another lawyer that was left. He either left or anyway, couldn't do this role as heading up this very big project. And the leading lights were coming out from New York, the top people and we had to give a presentation I had to give the presentation and it's amazing how one present I've seen it time and time again one presentation can make or break someone's career and you talk about oh that was a good presentation and blah blah and and so it's that public face you're given a public face and if you don't blow it it's good public face and if you don't blow it it's good so I didn't blow it and so that propelled my career and I've seen it time and time again but anyway so one of the leading lawyers there had come out from New York we just had coffee and he said to me, Bill, you've got to make a decision. Do you want to be in the professional strand or do you want to be in the managerial strand? And today I'd say the leadership strand because I'd prefer that term. That really got me thinking because he said, you know, the skills are different. Mm-hmm. Each is equally valuable, though often the leadership strand is regarded as better, but I don't agree with that. I think the professional strand needs to be treasured and nurtured and paid what it needs to be paid and the titles. But anyway, that was very good advice. I think it goes to a lot of us. What strand do we want to be? Do we want to be the lawyer at the desk or do we want to be that lawyer plus going out from your desk and brutally say, sell yourself? Right. I don't mean that. It's nothing worse than it's probably a wrong term, but just getting out there and having relationships. Yeah. And what did you choose? A bit of both, I think, but I think the managerial leadership, I guess I chose or it chose me and, you know, it's been very rewarding. But, you know, I think, you know, just go back to what I said, I think because the leadership strand has more focus often and more reward, I'd love to change that. And especially in law firms, I know in the law firm I work with in New York, they treasured the professional stand. I think those years it took eight years to be a partner, but they'd say to someone, look, you're not going to be a partner, but we're going to reward you because we treasure you. We treasure your expertise. Please stay. I mean, whether that's said or not, that's how I looked at it. And I think we just absolutely need to treasure the people in corporations and who just want to go in, do their job and not want to get on this, what we normally see as the ladder. Yeah, that's exactly right. There can be a sense of climbing a ladder because that's what you need to do. And so I'll continue to amass more status and people and team will grow and then you seem to somehow call that success and and that is what it can look like for some people. But equally, there can be other ways of adding value 
in a corporate and, and one of them is that expertise and being that subject matter expert as well and not necessarily managing people but managing the knowledge and really honing the skill there. I know Google actually does a great job of this. They have two streams similar to the advice okay. that you were given. And at, at one point or another in your career at Google, there is that track of, okay, you're taking the specialist or you're taking the leadership. And I'm not using the correct terms, but they're both equally rewarded and acknowledged in their different ways, but in a similar similar hierarchy or kind of status within the company. So yeah, I've seen that starting to develop in the corporate space. And it reminds me of a partner versus, or not versus, but a partner and special counsel in the firm. You can very much see those two personality traits and then that's replicating in-house. So I think that the advice given to you is bang on and would still be useful to think about today. But I, I mean, if we're speaking about leadership, that's a big topic. I would love to get your thoughts on it and what you think makes a good leader as someone who's working in-house with a team. Wow. <laughs> mm, it's a big one, I know. Yeah, look, it's, there are so many definitions of leadership. I mean, it's, you know, it's that old, I just go back to, you know what, what a good leader is when you see it. Leadership is when you see it and feel it because I think there are so many different leadership situations, but to me, it really comes down to how you feel about yourself and how you feel about others. The leadership is a we, not an I. You're a good host. You host your team. You host your company. I love that metaphor of a host. A lot of people have written about that, leader as host. That's interesting. I haven't heard that before. Can yeah. you explain that to me a little? Well, if I came into your home and you were hosting a meal, I'd come away and say, boy, Mel was a good host. I really felt comfortable. I felt as if she really cared about me, asked me how I was, took care of my concerns. And she also allowed me to speak my views and didn't put me down, that sort of thing. But it's all the good things we see about a host. For me, that's a great metaphor. And sometimes a good host may have to say, look, I need to go to bed. Would you please leave? I mean, maybe in a different thing, but sometimes a leader has to say, step up and give an order or something. It's, it's a bit like Margie. She's an actor director and as a director, you know, she'll be very collaborative all the way through. But there'll come a time, I don't know, three days before or a week before the show's going to go up, becomes a more, hey, this is how it's going to be. So we do have these different roles and sometimes we've got to do that. But Yeah, I really like that. You know. I think that's a wonderful, a wonderful metaphor. And it reminds me of something I, I heard recently about leadership. Essentially said that as a leader, you actually work for your team. They don't work for you. And it's a yeah. complete shift in how I think a lot of people might think about managing and leading a team. And actually, no, when you show up, you show up for them. And how can you help them? grow and learn and be who they need to be to enjoy their work. Like that's quite a lot of uh, responsibility in a sense and it's not for everyone. But I think the way you framed it there as a host, is that's really resonating. I absolutely love that. The thing I love about that terminology and, you know, if anyone's listening to this and wants more information about that, I mean, just Google host and legal. You know, a chap called Mark McGurgo has, has done a bit on it. But the thing I like about those sorts of metaphors or analogies is that every sphere of life is similar. As a parent, I'm a host. As a dinner party giver, I'm a host. As a leader, I'm a host. As a football coach, I'm a host. It's just 
I'm hosting others. And it's just the circumstances that change, but it's the same way of being. It's the same skill. I may shout a bit louder as a football coach, but they're the differences. So that's why I love these kind of ideas because I did some research on leadership and I lost count. I think even the website's gone or something, but it came up with about 70 <laughs> styles of leadership and I gave up after that. So just looking at what is a common theme or what's that, and uh, I think hosting's not a bad one. Yeah. I like that and, and I like you mentioned parenting in there as a list of examples. I know that that is another sphere of your life as such that was significant for you and remains to be significant. Now you're writing on the topic and, and to be published author on the topic and I think that I'd love to shift our conversation to that portion of your life now. There's so much in it but how you were managing parenting and lawyering and your career, how was that <laughs> <laughs> that experience for you because I think a lot of people really struggle with that balance in inverted commas in that time of your life when you're growing a small human and a career or how did you find your way through that time? Yeah, look, it's a fabulous question. I could go on and on about it, but I guess keeping the conversation going, Margie and I have unlikely parents in terms of coming together as parents in many ways. On the surface, we look to be very different people, but we really weren't inside fundamentally. And we've just kept the conversation going. And a couple of times in order to do that, we've had to seek outside support for this male who's taught that you, know, <laughs> you solve your own problems. <laughs> just get on with it. Just get busy. But anyway. Oh, let, my God. Let's just, so, so unhelpful. <laughs> let, let's just say um, I was very strongly encouraged to join the program. <laughs> but it was just keeping that conversation going. And when we needed assistance, we sought it because I'm very hard on myself at times, but I may be being too hard on myself. But, you know, I'm not that easy to live with at times. So I was brought up with stress, and I don't mean that to have a comment on the way I was brought up. I had a very loving parents and everything. They did the best they could, but they had their own stresses in life, you know, through wars and depressions and what have you. And mm, for sure. So I was brought up in a fairly stressful atmosphere, and I think in many ways I passed this on in the family, and we had to deal with that. So it was just keeping the conversation going. When you say that, do you mean between yourself and your partner? Or and between, the children. And the children, okay. But, you know, not all of us necessarily have a partner in parenting. So if you're a single parent, there's a significant other you can keep the conversation going with and keep talking, trying to be what's Carol, the kind of growth mindset. Because I think the main thing with parenting is that there's no right answer. We do not have control over the outcome of for our children. So it's a moment-by-moment -moment process with peer groups, social influences, blah, blah, blah. All we can do is have control of the moment. And, and communicate. And communicate. That's and, what I'm kind of getting from you there. Yeah, and I think, you know, I once had a boss who said he had no fixed views and he had many fixed views. I think you just can't have fixed views. You know, it doesn't matter which school they go to as long as they enjoying the school and learning things. Doesn't matter where you live, doesn't matter which car you have, doesn't matter all these things. Nothing matters. And oh sorry, a lot matters. But I think we've just got to have a very much a growth mindset and, and keep the conversation going and getting support wherever you get it. Not from someone that will we often have close friends and if you get an argument with your spouse they'll say, Oh yeah, poor you. So you don't want that support. You may need it at times, but you want 
support to respectfully be curious. Mm, I get that. You really could apply everything you just said to your career as well and to working in any organization with any group of people. Communication, asking for help and support, being open to new ideas, having that growth mindset. I really can see that in so much of your advice, Bill, it's very simple in, at the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> it does boil down to those fundamental things and you apply them across the different spheres of your life, as you said so eloquently. Yeah, I love that. I love the way that you draw through those recurring kind of themes that come up. And now you're writing a book on the topic, the parenting part, but I suspect it's going to pull in from all areas of your life. How is that going at the moment? Well, you got me at a good time. I put in my first version for editing. Very good. Exciting. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, I put that in and let's just say many suggestions were made and they're all fabulous. Fortunately, I was sitting down at the time I oh, saw so it. so you've got the edits back. <laughs> Someone told me that when you write a book, it only starts beginning when you go for editing. Gotcha. And in many ways, I thought that's true. So the book's changed title. It's much, much, much lighter. <laughs> it's got many less words. And I pressed the send button on that yesterday. And it certainly discusses parenting, but because of the philosophy behind it, it's really every aspect of our lives. That's wonderful. Hmm. Wow. We are coming up to the top of the hour and the end of our time. And I know we've just scratched the surface on so much of what you've achieved and experienced as a lawyer, as a parent, as a human, and we could talk for hours, I'm sure. But to wrap it all up for us, I want to ask, if you're looking back on it all, your legal career, your corporate career, New York, Hong Kong, your practice days, your own firm, Exxon and, and West Farmers and all of the other in-house roles, reflecting and asking yourself, was it worth it? What would you say? Absolutely. Good. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> oh, boy, if I was paid by the word, I'd go on. But <laughs> No, you're not anymore. <laughs> and did you, I guess, <laughs> how did you find joy in your career? What would you say to someone who's going through it now so that they can get to the end of their legal career and, and also feel that it was worth it? Two words this time, nurture relationships. Beautiful. That's wonderful. And we're doing that right now. And I thank you. I thank you for coming into my life and for being a mentor and a coach, whether you realize it or not, and for spending time on your Saturday during lockdown to speak and to open up this conversation, nurture relationships. That's a wonderful, wonderful way to finish, I think, Bill, unless there's anything else that you wanted to share. <laughs> no, no, it's been lovely, Mel, and, and thank you very much for your kind words. And I've just been very fortunate with the people in my lives, my, all my lives, there you go, <laughs> um, the, the other hundred lives, yeah. And I've just been very fortunate with the people. I, I shout out to every person that I've just had such a privilege to meet and to support me along the way. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Bill. Well, thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Council. Please subscribe to the show so that you don't miss future episodes. And while you're there, it would mean the world to me if you could leave a review for this podcast. Tell me what you'd love to hear more of and where you're listening from. I'd love to connect with you on LinkedIn, Instagram, or even Clubhouse. Check out the show notes for all of these links.